You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. It's been a wild Wednesday. We've got the latest on Jadevian Clowney and the return of a former Seahawk back to Seattle. Let's get to it. Now for your lead story on Locked On Seahawks. Clowney still remains unsigned. There's no resolution in sight, or is there? Diana Rossini of ESPN Today reported Clowney's camp may be willing to go down to 17 to 18 million per year. My sources confirmed that info. We are now into April. It has to be clear to Clowney and his camp that he's not going to get a long-term deal for $20 million per year or more. That's simply not happening. The way the market materialized, it never was. And, and there's been a number of factors that have caused that. Clowney's got a lengthy injury history. He had microfracture surgery back in 2014 at the end of his rookie season. Only played in a handful of games that year. He's had a couple other minor injuries that have prevented him from playing 15, 16 games in a season. He's coming off of surgery for a sports hernia-related issue. So teams wanted to get a close look at him. And then you've got the COVID-19 crisis, which has created travel restrictions, the NFL not allowing players to visit with teams at their facilities. So that means their team doctors can't do physicals for these players. So there's been a number of things behind this. Obviously, the fact he had three sacks last year also played a role in him not getting the money that he thought he was going to get. To recap this whole socket at this point, as I reported a few weeks ago, the Seahawks initially made an offer of $18.5 million per year sometime between the combine and free agency. Clowney's reps thought $20 million or more per year was going to be happening. That's their aiming point. A deal wasn't signed. He wanted to hit the market. That was obvious this entire time, regardless of what Seattle did. Unless they threw like $25 million at him per year, then he may not have hit the free agent market. But they wanted to test free agency. He thought there was going to be a bidding war here and that teams are going to be lining up for his services. Only 27 years old, former number one overall pick. It's understandable But once the market actually opened up and free agency started with a legal tampering period on March 16th, teams clearly were not interested in him as anticipated, and he quickly started looking at short-term deals. Seattle reportedly was offering $13.5 million on a one- or two-year deal, and many have asked me on social media, why so low? It's all about the inability to backload contracts, something that the Seahawks love to do when they sign players to long-term deals. They like to backload deals. They like to push salary cap ramifications back to the latter stages of the deal. That gives them some flexibility. And a lot of times, the third and fourth year in a contract doesn't have much, if any, guaranteed money. So that gives them a lot of flexibility if they're wanting to move on from a player or if they're wanting to sign an extension after three years, then they've got some wiggle room, and that allows them to do more in the present. So that's been common practice for John Schneider, and you can't do that on a one-year deal. And why would Schneider want to give him 17 or $18 million on a one-year deal anyway? He might as well have used the franchise tag on Clowney if they were going to pay him that kind of money for one year. And currently, the way the cap is set up, the Seahawks have been aggressive filling other needs. They signed a bunch of offensive linemen. They traded for Quentin Dunbar. They've added some pass rushers that are second, third tier caliber players while they've been waiting for Clowney to make a decision. So now cap space has dried up some. Even with the moves they made a few days ago to release Tedrick Thompson and Ed Dixon, 
This is not a team that has a ton of cap space as currently constructed. There are moves they can make to open up space. They are not out of the clowny sweepstakes by any means. They are still very interested in making this work. But the issue that Clowney is now dealing with here, those short-term deals, he was not going to get the money that he was hoping that he was going to get. And so now we're circling back the wagons a bit here. Maybe that means opening back up dialogue for a long-term deal. We'll see. But Seattle isn't going to sit idle. And today they made another move. They took another blast to the pass to help that pass rush by signing defensive end Benson Mayoya. To me, this is a very smart deal. One year, $3 million fully guaranteed. It could be up to $4 million with incentives. And this is for a player that has been a late bloomer. He's only 28. He's going to be 29 during the season. So still a fairly young player. And he's coming off a career high. Seven sacks for the Raiders. Did not start a single game for Oakland last year. And yet he had really nice pass rushing numbers, had a good pressure rate that that ranked above several pro bowlers as well. So Mayoya in limited snaps did a ton of damage. He had a six sack season in 2016 for the Cowboys. So this is a player that started his career in Seattle. He was an undrafted free agent. He's a phenomenal story because we, we hear all the time about the undrafted free agents that have had success in Seattle. He's on a different level in that regard. Only played two games for the Seahawks, but the fact that he made the roster is pretty remarkable because he was not a priority undrafted free agent coming out of Idaho. He was not signed immediately after the draft concluded like a lot of the players Seattle brings in. He had to participate in the rookie minicamp just to get noticed, and then the Seahawks signed him, had a pretty impressive preseason and training camp, made the final roster, was a healthy scratch most of the season. Again, only played in two games, but the fact that he made that roster that had Cliff Averill, Michael Bennett, Chris Clemens, and a number of other defensive ends on it. He was able to make the team. That's an impressive accomplishment. And now he's hung around. He's played for four teams, and he's been able to become a reliable contributor as a pass rusher in this league. So I think this is a very smart deal. Bruce Irvin also being brought back. Those two guys combined for 15 sacks last year. Now, who knows if they're actually going to be able to produce the same numbers in Seattle next season. But if they can come close, that is going to help this pass rush be much better. Both those guys would have led the Seahawks in sacks. Rasheem Green led the team with just four in 2019. So they are both going to be big-time contributors in a rotational role. I don't know that either one of them is a starter at this point. Those guys are going to give them meaningful snaps. They're going to have much better depth than what they had last year. And that should, by itself, make them better at getting after opposing quarterbacks. I'm excited about this reunion, both those guys. But my hot take, I actually think the Mayoya signing may be the better one of the two because he's only 28. And as I said, late bloomer, really coming into his own last year. I wouldn't be shocked if he can come out and match that this season for Seattle, really getting after the quarterback and racking up sacks. That's a big deal for them. When I return from the break, it's a special Wednesday edition of our Locked On Seahawks mailbag. I'll answer as many questions as I can. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm Corbin Smith. Later in the show, the Seahawks have made nine moves so far this offseason. Which players have benefited most from those moves and which ones could be in trouble because of them? I'm going to take a deeper dive. First, it's time for a special Wednesday mailbag. 
My social media accounts were flooded with questions today. Obviously, a ton about clowning. Going to try to avoid that general issue since I talked about it so much in the first quarter. But it's only fitting I take the time to answer some of your questions. So here we go. First one coming from Wampet Gaming. Who do you think Seattle could sign at running back? I'm still under the viewpoint that Seattle would be best suited to use a draft pick. And I'm not saying use one of them the first couple rounds. They don't have to do that. This is a pretty solid running back group. I think they could draft a decent running back on day three. Maybe one of the ones they've already visited with will fall to the fourth round. And then it would make a ton of sense to draft one then. I'm just not a big fan of signing veteran running backs. They have been linked to Isaiah Crowell. I think he makes some sense if they really want to go that route. He is coming off an Achilles tear, so that's something to keep an eye on. He should be cheap. That would be the nice thing. It would be a pretty cheap addition for them to bring him in as insurance with Rashad Penny coming back from a torn ACL. The other one I'm going to throw out there is Devontae Booker from the Broncos. This guy never really got it going in Denver, and then they drafted Royce Freeman. Philip Lindsay became an undrafted sensation. Now they've got Melvin Gordon on the roster. I mean, he was never going to be the feature guy with the moves that happened there, and he had some problems producing when he was given opportunities, but I still think looking at his body type, the type of runner that he is, his ability to catch the football, I still think he can help somebody, and Seattle's not going to be looking to spend big bucks. He's not going to be overly expensive to sign on a one-year deal. And with minimal guaranteed money, if Rashad Penny comes back quicker than expected, you can move on from him. He doesn't have to be a feature guy at all. But from a depth standpoint, still a young running back. Those two guys would make sense. I still think the draft is the way to go if Seattle wants to add running back depth, however. 27 Seahawks fan, do you think of Mayoya as a rotational depth piece or a starter? And does this signing indicate Seattle is moving on from Clowney? As I just mentioned last quarter, there's no way we can say the Seahawks are out of the Clowney sweepstakes at this point. I fully expect that they are going to continue negotiating, but it is very evident now they already let a number of good pass rushers fly off the market waiting for Clowney, and now it's April. At some point, their patience is going to run out and they're just going to move on. Everson Griffin is out there still available and he's just waiting for the domino that is Clowney to fall. Could Seattle potentially just say, you know what, we'll let that domino fall to somebody else. We're going to make sure we get one of these two guys and go get Everson Griffin. I don't think that's out of the question, but for now, the Seahawks are still very interested in re-signing Clowney. They're going to try to make this work with the revelations of today that the asking price for a long-term deal is going back down some. I could see Seattle being willing to go back up there because those long-term deals, again, you can backload the contract so there are larger cap hits later in the deal, and they will have some flexibility with that. You don't get that on one- or two-year contracts, though, so it depends on the length of the contract. I think they're still in the mix there. As far as Mayoya goes, I mentioned this in the first quarter. I don't view him or Bruce Irvin as starters right now. Of those two, I think Mayoya probably is the most likely to step into the starting lineup because he has ascended the last few years. He's played a lot better football. I still see those guys being rotational pieces that can come in and help. Mayoya is a little bigger body, so maybe he can play on early downs a little bit more than Bruce Irvin at this stage of Irvin's career, especially. I think they're both rotational pieces, very good ones at that. They can play a lot of snaps for you. Just because they're not starting doesn't mean they're only playing a couple snaps a game. I think they're going to get a lot of playing time. It does give them a lot better depth, though, as I mentioned, than they did a year ago. So he's an excellent rotational piece to add to what they already have, as is Bruce Irvin. Matthew Shearer tweets, If you chose to reverse the order of receiver and defensive end in your most recent mock draft, 
meaning to take an edge in round one and receiver in late two. Who would be a realistic but great combo for the Hawks to target? So I picked Jalen Rager in my most recent mock draft at number 30 after trading down. He was still there. Yes, that's not the Seahawks' biggest need, but he's a dynamic playmaker. Simply could not pass it up, and I think John Schneider would have a hard time doing that. And then I picked Jonathan Greenard out of Florida in the second round. If I was reversing roles and picking an edge rusher in the first round, to be honest with you, Matthew, with what was left on the board, I would have been reaching badly because Yitor Gross Matos was drafted. Zach Bond was picked by the Miami Dolphins the pick before I was on the board at number 27. So those two were off the board. Caleb on Chason was still there when I traded back. I'm not quite as high on him as some of the other rushers. I was hoping trading back, maybe he was there at 30. I would have considered it, but I just don't know if I view him as a surefire first round pick at this point. And so that was really the only option there. Epineza was picked in the mid-teens, and obviously Chase Young was the number two overall pick on the mock draft. The Redskins selected him. So there's a really big drop-off after those first four or five guys. I would not pick Greenard in the first round. I like him, but he and Josh Uchi, some of the other players that are second-round possibilities, I would not reach picking them in the first round. Even after trading down at 30, I was not going to do that. So obviously, if one of those other players I mentioned, like Gross Matos or Bond was available, then I would have taken them at number 30. But that's just not how it ended up playing out. Marcus tweets, should we have tried to get Alden Smith? I see Dallas just signed him. How about no? No, there's no way the Seahawks should have had any interest in Alden Smith. The guy has not played since 2015, and I'm not going to sit here and say it's impossible he could come in and play because this was a pro bowler and all-pro caliber player when he was able to stay out of trouble, which just wasn't very often. Now, from everything that I have been reading today, he's really gotten his life turned around. We'll see if that's really the case. He hasn't played in a game since 2015. He had off-field issues as recently as 2018. So it's not like he's had three years to really get everything together. He was still having issues with the law. He's had eight arrests since 2012. So yes, he was talented at one point, but not a guy you take a gamble on, especially considering the fact he hasn't played in the NFL in over four years. Last game he played in was with the Oakland Raiders. So Good for him getting a contract with Dallas, and best of luck to him. Not a guy that Seattle should have had any interest in, even with their pass-rushing woes. Gabe tweets, five favorite bands and best one live. Nice little change-up from our sports conversations. This is a football show, but if I had to say what my second most favorite passion in this world is behind football, it would be rock music and metal music. I am constantly listening to music while I'm working, writing articles and stuff. I'd say for my five favorites, number one's easy for me. Trivium is my favorite band all time. I've seen them in concert eight times. I'm supposed to be seeing them nine times in July. We'll see if that actually happens with the coronavirus stuff. But I'm hoping I get to see them again with their new album that's coming out next month, or later this month, actually, get to listen to some of their new stuff live. Atreyu would be number two, a very close number three, As I Lay Dying, uh, Seven Dust number four, and then Disturbed number five. So I rounded out with a little more rock-oriented acts, but really a metal guy. The top three that I have on my list are my three favorite metal bands. I would say Lamb of God's a close six. They're right behind Seven Dust and Disturbed. As far as live bands go, it's Disturbed and everyone else. I've seen Disturbed four times. 
They've been phenomenal every single time I've seen them live. David Draymond is a god singing rock music, metal music live. He's amazing. Trivium, Corn, Avenged Sevenfold behind him, tied for second. Lamb of God's a pretty fun show as well. There's a number of other bands that I could throw out there, but um, I, I go to concerts all the time. I'm a big fan of seeing live music. Hopefully, like professional sports, we will all be able to enjoy concerts again here as soon as possible when things start getting better out there. Hawk Dog tweets. What are your top 10 edge rushers in this draft? So, Hawk Dog, I don't want to give everything away from my scouting secrets, okay? I'm not really a scout, so I guess I'm allowed to. But Chase Young's obviously number one. I actually blended defensive ends and outside linebackers slash edge rushers here because you didn't ask specifically for either or. So I'm going to base this off the best edge players in this draft, whether they're five techs, if they are Leo defensive end candidates. Chase Young is number one easily. He's top three pick. A.J. Epineza didn't have a great combine. I still think he's a damn good football player. He's number two on my list. Zach Bond comes in at number three. He keeps shooting up my list. This guy can do a little bit of everything. He can rush the passer off the edge. He can play all three linebacker spots. Extremely cerebral, high football IQ, an excellent athlete. I think he's a player the Seahawks would really like if he's still available there at 27. And then I've got at number four, Yitor Gross Matos. Talked a ton about him on this show. The length at 6'4", 260 plus pounds, long arms. He's just a fantastic prospect. He's a little more raw than some of the guys I just mentioned, but I think he would be a phenomenal defensive end in Seattle system, their 4-3 system. He had 34 tackles for loss, 17 and a half sacks for Penn State the last three years. He's been productive, and it just feels like he's scratching the surface of his talent. Terrell Lewis out of Alabama will be my next guy at number five. He's a guy that's had some injuries. He's played linebacker. I think at his size, though, well over 250 pounds, I think he can play defensive end in the NFL, and he's got really good pass rushing skills. Number six, Caleb on chase on. I worry about his technical stuff. He, he's a great athlete. You can see the motor. That's something I love about this kid. He plays hard every single snap. I think he's better against the run than advertised, but I, I do see some Barkevious Mingo in his game, and it's not just because they're similarly built and they both played for LSU. I see similar games from those two guys. I'm just not sure that I'm wanting to take that pick in the first round on him. Josh Uche out of Michigan coming in at number seven for me. I think a little smaller guy, but definitely can play that Leo position. Has a ton of upside as a bendy edge rusher. Jonathan Greenard. A player that only ran a 4.8540, but he plays faster than that on the field. I like him as an explosive off the snap pass rusher. And then the last three guys I'm going to just throw out there here. No particular order, different skill sets. Curtis Weaver from Boise State is an excellent pass rusher. I have con- I have concerns about his run defense. Bradley and I, questions about his arm length, but man, was he productive at Utah. He's just a really good football player. I think he's a second-round pick that would make some sense, even with the arm length concerns. And Julian Aquora out of Notre Dame, we got to see what he's, you know, we didn't get to see him at the Combine do much because he was coming back from a broken uh, foot. But Aquora is certainly a player that would make some sense for Seattle as an edge rusher, can drop back in coverage too. So maybe a Sam linebacker candidate. He gives you some flexibility. His numbers weren't necessarily there at Notre Dame, though, given all of his physical talents and obviously a very intelligent young man. Never really could get the sack numbers up like you would like, but he's the guy in the right system I think could be very effective in the league. Jose Rodriguez tweets, what's more realistic, Yannick Ngakwe and Griffin, Yannick Ngakwe and Clowney, or neither? 
I hate to break your heart, Jose. I'm going to have to go with neither. I just think at this point, it's not that it's impossible, but when you look at the cap situation, Seattle's already going to be hard-pressed to try to sign Clowney or Everson Griffin. Then you throw Yannick Ngakwe in there where you have to trade a first-round pick. I I am sure that it would include a first-round pick and a deal for him. Then you have to pay him. I know the Seahawks have inquired. I know they've looked into Matt Judon as well. He'd be a little cheaper draft uh, compensation-wise. But unless they completely strike out on Griffin and Clowney, then I think they're going to be going back to Jacksonville and Baltimore seeing if they can do something. But if they sign one of those two guys, I don't see them making a trade unless we get to August like Clowney last year and one of those guys still remains and Jacksonville's desperate to move him, has no leverage. That creates a different situation. But as it is now, I don't think it's realistic that you get Yannick Ngakwe with either Griffin or Clowney. I just think you're going to have to settle for either one of those two veterans as a free agent or you lose both of them and then you can try to make a trade at that point. NFL Talk 18 tweets. Last question here. What do you think will be a bigger priority for Seattle in the draft, offensive tackle or defensive tackle? Well, after retaining Jaron Reed, I, th- I definitely think it's offensive tackle. I know Brandon Shell was brought in to replace Jermaine Effetti, but this is an excellent offensive tackle class. I think they can get really good value at the end of the first round or the second round. There are some players that could slip to when Seattle has two picks at 59 and 64. They need to find somebody that can play right tackle potentially and is going to be the heir apparent on the left side for Dwayne Brown, who's going to be 35 in August. He's still a very good player, but Father Time is undefeated. At some point here, Dwayne Brown is going to slow down to the point that Seattle needs to have somebody ready to replace him. This is the perfect class to find that player. And if it's a guy that can play right tackle before then and contribute immediately for you, then that's a great deal for the Seahawks. Coming up in the third quarter, the Seahawks have made nine moves to this point. Which players have been most positively impacted by those additions and which players should be looking over their shoulder a little bit heading towards training camp in the 2020 season. I'm going to take a deep dive into all of those moves. I'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. The Seahawks have made nine moves so far in free agency. They signed Greg Olson to kick things off back in February. He was cut by the Panthers, so Seattle could sign him before free agency opened on March 18th. The other eight moves they've made have happened since the start of the league year. Benson Maioya signing today being the most recent. They've added Bruce Irvin. They traded for Quentin Dunbar, standout cornerback from the Washington Redskins, signed four offensive linemen, including B.J. Finney from the Steelers. So Seattle has been active. They haven't made the moves with pass rushers that fans were hoping for, and obviously there's that big asterisk right now, Jadevian Clowney being unsigned. If they can't bring him back, that would certainly put a damper on the offseason, especially if they can't go out and get Everson Griffin. But looking at the moves they have made to this point, obviously the additions to the roster, they've been able to fill a number of needs. I want to take a look at three players who have positively been impacted by these signings and trades, and I want to look at three players on the opposite end of the spectrum that maybe are in a little bit of trouble heading into the 2020 season with some of the competition, some of the players that have been added to the roster in the past few weeks. Let's start on the positive side. Stock up. The players that have benefited the most from the moves, you got to start with Russell Wilson, and I know they have not gotten the stars that he was clamoring for. But 
He was involved in recruiting Greg Olson to Seattle. Olson had interest from the Redskins and Bills. He visited with both teams. He liked what they had to offer. But the difference there was Russell Wilson. And why not? Greg Olson's not the player that he was in 2014 to 2016, where he had three straight 1,000-yard-plus receiving seasons, was a pro bowler all three of those seasons, helped the Panthers get to a Super Bowl. He is 35 years old now. He's not the same player. But... He is still a big-bodied, athletic target that is a matchup problem. And when you put him in an offense that already has Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf to take a lot of attention off other receivers, Will Disley coming back, if he's anything close to what he looked like before getting hurt last year, then there are so many weapons for Russell Wilson. Greg Olson's just another guy that defenses are going to have a really tough time accounting for in the red zone. This is already a great red zone offense the past two years since Brian Schottenheimer got here. He's been the biggest difference maker for them, calling plays inside the 20. You add another target like Greg Olson to the mix, that really makes this offense tough to stop. So I think that's a great move that Russell Wilson's going to benefit from, and I think Philip Dorsett could be a sneaky good move. Now, Dorsett, is only, he's only eclipsed 500 receiving yards one time in his career. He had a career-high five touchdowns last year. He has not played at the level expected of a first-round pick. But it's worth wondering if a scheme change going to Seattle where they throw a lot of passes downfield and he's got those weapons around him, we know he's got track speed. 4-3-3, 40-yard dash in the 2014 combine. This is a player that can take the top off the defense, but... It just hasn't been utilized much when he's with the Colts or the Patriots, even though he played with really good quarterbacks on both teams. you got to wonder if the scheme fit here is really going to help bring the best out of him. I'm not saying he's going to go out and get 1,000 yards, but certainly I could see Dorsett being a guy that gives him a third receiver that can put up 400, 500 yards and can be a guy that averages 16, 17 yards per reception, gets a bunch of big chunk plays, and if they can get that from a third receiver, good luck opposing defensive coordinators. So Russell Wilson benefiting from the moves they've made so far. Four offensive linemen being signed. They're trying to address by signing guys that are better in pass protection historically. So maybe they're going to let Russell cook a little bit more as some fans have been clamoring for. I just think it's been a positive offseason for him. The other two guys that I think have benefited have been because of guys that have left. Demarcus Christmas and LJ Collier. Christmas did not play at all as a rookie. He was on the pup list. He was healthy by the middle of the season, but they just didn't have any room on the roster, so they kept him on the pup list. This is a player that they're still pretty high on. He impressed them early in the offseason last year before he was put on the pup list to the start of training camp. He did some really good things. The organization was excited about him as a sixth-round pick out of Florida State. He's not as big-bodied as Al Woods. He's just a little over 300 pounds, but he is a really good run defender. At least that's what he did at Florida State. He's not going to give you much as a pass rusher, but he can play the nose tackle position. He can play three-tech alignment at defensive tackle, and I look at the depth behind Jaron Reed and Puna Ford. That's a really good starting tandem, but you've got Nas Jones, who missed all of last season, hasn't done much since his rookie campaign. Brian Monet, undrafted free agent, played in four games last year and was hit and miss in his limited opportunities for them. They don't have much depth at the position. You can maybe reduce Rasheem Green and LJ Collier inside on passing downs, but they are not true defensive tackles. So this is a good opportunity for DeMarcus Christmas to potentially carve out a rotational role for the Seahawks. I expect they're going to add another veteran at some point, like they've done so many times. Al Woods last year, they did that within May. 
And they could draft somebody in the middle to late rounds in the draft as well to supplement that defensive line. But I still think this is an ideal opportunity for DeMarcus Christmas. The same can be said for LJ Collier. Yes, his rookie season was an extreme disappointment when you're a first-round pick and you finish with just three tackles playing in 11 games. There's nothing that can describe your season except disappointment. Putrid. I mean, it was an awful season for him, and it just got off to a really bad start with that ankle injury that he suffered. He missed all of the preseason, most of training camp, missed the season opener. He's playing catch-up the entire season. He was battling a numbers game. But now that Quentin Jefferson is in Buffalo, I think he's the most natural player on the roster to step up and take over Quentin Jefferson's role. I think there may be more potential there for him as a pass rusher at the defensive end position. He was a guy that was surprisingly good at getting to the quarterback his last year at TCU. He's not going to rack up huge numbers of sacks, not a phenomenal athlete, but he had decent counter moves on film. So there's potential there that he can impact the pass rush some. And he's 283, 285 pound range. So you can reduce him inside. He did that some at TCU. They expect all their defensive linemen to be able to move around the line. And that's just a really well-run program. So I think he's more than capable of filling that Quentin Jefferson role. And with what they currently have on the roster, still not having Clowney signed, right now, if the season was getting ready to kick off with the current roster constructed, he has a chance to play a very extensive role along with Rasheem Green. Both those guys would be counted on heavily with the current defensive end group that they have. I expect Collier is going to get a lot of opportunities whenever the season starts to be able to carve out a pretty nice role for Seattle. They've still got high expectations despite what happened last year. Now let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Which players have been negatively impacted by the move Seattle has made to this point? I've got to start with receiver Malik Turner in this category because I talked about the impact Dorsett may have. They did sign David Moore, a restricted free agent. They gave him an original round tender. Maybe another team comes in and tries to make an offer at some point. But at this juncture, I would guess he's going to be a Seahawk in 2020. So you've got him coming back. And John Ursua is a player that continues to be talked about positively by the coaching staff as well as John Schneider. I think they've got some plans for him in the slot position. He might be the most natural slot they have on the roster. They wanted to get him more involved end of the year to last season. So I anticipate Ursua is going to get a run as well. With those three guys I just mentioned, you've already got Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf on the roster. This is an outstanding rookie draft class at the receiver position. I fully expect Seattle is going to pick at least one receiver in this class with their seven draft picks, possibly more if, if Schneider does the usual trading down. So Malik Turner right now would be an odd man out in that situation to me. Now, maybe he does what he did last year, really surprised people. He's a good special teams player, which really matters at the bottom of the depth chart at the receiver position. But he battled drops the end of the year, had a couple really big ones. The one in the Green Bay game in the divisional round was killer. If he catches that ball, drive continues. Seahawks might have advanced to the NFC Championship game. You don't want to put that kind of blame on a player. Other things in that game, like not scoring much in the first half, certainly hurt them. But he had some big drops late in the season. He's going to have to really battle to stay on the roster, especially if they add a receiver, as I expect, in the draft. They might sign a guy or two undrafted because this class is so good that can come in and compete with him. He himself was an undrafted free agent out of Illinois. So I think Turner's going to have to really battle to stick on this roster. Going to the offensive line, Ethan Post comes in at number two. I just look at the depth chart. I know at one point 
He was a promising second round pick. He started 11 games as a rookie. They were really excited about his upside. And the last two years, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. And when he has been in the lineup, he's had issues with drawing penalties. He's struggled as a run blocker. Can't really find a fit for him. He's kind of that tweener, as Rob has talked about on our show several times. Is he a guard? Is he a center? Can he play the tackle position? Not sure he has the length to play there. He just hasn't been able to find his niche, and the injuries killed him last year. He played in just four games, injured reserve two different times. So he's entering the final year in his rookie contract. And if you look at the depth chart, Justin Britt is still there. It's looking even more likely he's going to be there in 2020. You've got B.J. Finney, who they just signed, that can play center really well, has starting experience there. Joey Hunt retained with an original round tender. So where does Ethan Posick fit in? If you're looking at him at guard, maybe it's a little more optimistic for him, but you've still got Phil Haynes. They signed Chance Warmack. Oh, by the way, Finney can play left and right guard. He has starting experience at both spots. He's been better than Posick in those limited opportunities throughout his career. So where does he end up fitting in? You've got D.J. Fluker already cemented on the right side. I think he's going into this, if they get training camp going on time, I think he is going to be playing for his next job more than anything. I'd be really surprised with the depth they've currently got. If a couple moves happen, they release some people, Justin Britt gets let go of, then that maybe changes things. But I just get the sense he's going to be trying to put his best foot forward so that other teams can notice him when he is cut. I just think he's going to be an odd man out with the numbers they've got at guard and what they've got at center. He's not going to be in the mix at tackle. It's unfortunate. Maybe he'll surprise me. There's been times he's shown some promise, but he just hasn't been able to stay healthy. The numbers game is working against him. Now, going to the defense, the most obvious one. The trade for Quentin Dunbar was made primarily because the Seahawks felt they needed to address that second corner position. Trey Flowers played well at times last year. And and in fact, in the middle of the season, I thought he was playing better than Shaquille Griffin was for a while. He had several games where he played at a really high level. And then things bottomed out a little bit at the end of the regular season, and he had a really rough postseason. And so I don't think the Seahawks have given up on him. I think they still think he's got two years left in his rookie deal. Maybe in 2021 he'll have a bigger role. But with Dunbar coming to town, he's got one year left in his contract, as does Griffin. Both those guys are going to be competing against each other trying to get a long-term deal. Maybe the Seahawks pay both, but I would make a guess right now they're only going to pay one of those two players. And so the door is still open for Trey Flowers to be part of their future. But they wanted to make sure they brought in a player that was an upgrade, and they were able to do that in Dunbar, a guy that went healthy, has been really good. I think Trey Flowers still has a role in this defense and sub packages with his safety background at Oklahoma State. There's some things they can do with him. I would not be shocked if there's quite a bit uh, of playing time with all three of those guys on the field together. But at the same time, he's going to get a chance to compete against Dunbar. I think Dunbar is the better player. I think Dunbar wins the job. And so he's going to have to really handle himself on special teams more than anything in his third year in the league and and be ready to go if one of the guys in front of him gets banged up. Dunbar's got an injury history. Griffin's missed a few games in his career too. So he's going to give him much better insurance at the number three spot. But I would anticipate right now, maybe he plays a big nickel. He's a guy that can play special teams. 
Certainly the move to add Dunbar did not help him in terms of playing time going into next season. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks at gmail.com. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by visiting our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on our Thursday show, focus is going to shift back to the draft a bit. We're going to re-rank Seattle's roster needs, plus a look at defensive tackles, particularly in later rounds. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.